The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, Drs. Sachin Yende and Theodore Iwashina join me to discuss a new study by Dr. Yende's group that follows a group of people over time and evaluates the relationship between pneumonia and dementia. Dr. Yende and his colleagues have a manuscript entitled Bidirectional Relationship Between Cognitive Function and Pneumonia, and Dr. Iwashina wrote the accompanying editorial. Both are published in the September 1, 2013 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Yende is Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Director of the Clinical Research Investigation and Systems Modeling of Acute Illness Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. And Dr. Iwashina is Associate Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, as well as a research scientist in the Center for Clinical Management Research in the Health Science R&D Center of Excellence at the Ann Arbor VA Hospital. Thank you both for joining me today, and I'd like to start the podcast with a question for Dr. Yende. Dr. Yende, please describe the population-based cohort you have followed and the question you were asking in following them over time. Uh, We were interested in understanding how an acute infectious illness affects chronic health trajectories in older adults. Uh, One of the reasons to sort of ask this question was that previously there has been a large body of literature that has examined the role of chronic diseases and how it affects chronic health trajectories. A few years ago, a paper in the Journal of American Medical Association showed that at the end of life there are four trajectories. The first trajectory was an episode of catastrophic illness, which kills an individual. That is oftentimes a motor vehicle accident. The second trajectory was a terminal illness, such as cancer. And we were interested in the two additional trajectories that were reported in that paper, and they were organ failure trajectories and frailty. These two trajectories basically led to slow decline in older adults. And this decline was often punctuated by episodes of acute illness, which led to further decline. Most individuals did not completely recover from these episodes of acute illness. Most of the work done to date had tried to understand the role of chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease, including stroke or acute myocardial infarction, in these slowly declining trajectories. And we were wondering whether an acute infectious illness could be playing an important role in these trajectories. Interestingly, these trajectories were seen in about 40% of the population. So most individuals conceptualize an acute infectious illness as an illness of a very short duration and don't really conceptualize it as something that would affect chronic health. But let's say that an acute infectious illness does affect chronic health. 
In order for the infection to affect chronic health trajectories, two things have to happen. First of all, the chronic disease has to put that individual at higher risk for having an infection. And once that infection occurs, then that individual's chronic disease may be further accelerated due to that infectious illness. And one can think about it as a vicious cycle that is set up by this bidirectional relationship where individuals continue to worsen and subsequently die. So we decided to look at this relationship and sort of hypothesize that there is a bidirectional relationship between chronic health and acute infectious illness. So before we started the study, we had to pick an acute infectious illness and we had to think about a chronic disease. We chose to focus on pneumonia uh, when we started the study because it was the most common infectious cause of hospitalization in the developed world. We decided to look at cognition and dementia as a chronic illness because it's fairly common and it leads to functional disability and oftentimes leads to death. And so we decided to go to a population-based cohort, uh, and in this case it was a cardiovascular health study, because most of these measures were collected very accurately in this cohort. Pneumonia hospitalizations were identified using ICD-9 codes, which have been validated in previous studies. And detailed measures of cognition were obtained every year in this cohort. And we decided to look over a period of 10 years at cognition and pneumonia relationship. This cohort measured cognition using the TINGS mini mental status exam, which is slightly different than the mini mental status exam that has been used in prior studies. So in contrast to the MSC exam, which measures cognition on a scale of 0 to 30, this study uses Tings Mini Mental Status Exam, which measures cognition on a scale of 0 to 100. And these measures are obtained every year over the 10-year period the subject was able to participate in this exam. In addition to that, when subjects met criteria for dementia based on certain neuropsychological examinations, they were assessed by clinicians and dementia was adjudicated. And the nice thing about this study was that dementia was adjudicated by a group of experts who had clinical expertise in identifying dementia cases. And whenever there was some doubt, they ordered an MRI exam to rule out other potential causes of cognitive dysfunction. So this cohort was really a rich cohort with over 5,000 patients who were enrolled from four different geographic regions with very detailed measures of cognition and fairly good measures of pneumonia. Thank you for that description, Dr. Yende. I would like to ask Dr. Awashina a question. Dr. Awashina, I'm glad to have you on the podcast because you've written extensively about the trajectory of recovery after acute critical illness. I'd like to start with a, a two-part question. One, how does this study differ from other contemporary critical care outcomes research, and what different insight might this type of approach in a longitudinal study provide? Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Ned. I think what Dr. Yende and the group did that's so exciting is that they helped place a critical care study in a longitudinal context. So let me explain that in English. When we're taking care of patients, we're very aware that the way they're going to recover from their critical illness depends heavily on where they were beforehand. And much of past research has gotten stuck in one of two places. On the one hand, there were a few longitudinal studies, not many, that had said, look, people who are sick beforehand are sick afterwards, people who are well beforehand are well afterwards. 
And then most studies had said, look, critical illness is way too rare and way too uncommon for us to actually see people beforehand. So what we're going to do is wait until they get sick, and then once they get sick, we'll impanel them into a cohort and follow them afterwards. And that work has been tremendously important in helping us understand the sequelae of critical illness and has helped us to redefine how we think about life after severe illness. Much of the work that drives the notion of a post-intensive care syndrome comes from these cohort studies that take a group of people who are presumably healthy beforehand, meets them at the moment that they're lying in bed in front of us, and follows them forward. That's been very important, and I don't want to underplay that importance, but it has a really big limitation, which is that we're stuck guessing what those people look like before they became sick. And what the Pittsburgh group was able to do so elegantly with this was take advantage of a study where it had the size they needed to be able to see people for years before they got sick and then for years afterwards. So instead of waiting till people get sick and then trying to retrospectively hope you can figure out what they look like beforehand, they were able to use this data that had already been collected to say, we can follow these people over time and see what happens, boom, when they get sick. So that would have been really cool by itself. But then they did something even cooler. So they were able to use this existing study to look exactly like Dr. Yende was talking about, about the interplay between the trajectory of how people are doing and the way an acute illness happens. So most work in the past has said, let's just see how the acute illness disrupts the trajectory people were on beforehand, but hadn't been able to take into account at the same time the way the trajectory that you were on beforehand actually influenced whether or not you were likely to get sick. And some people, I think most prominently Gordon Rubenfeld uh, from Toronto, have been arguing for years this was a big hole, but nobody else had figured out how to do it right. And what their group did, using some very complex statistics that we're not going to talk about on the podcast, but that are beautiful, to actually simultaneously look at that interplay between how you're doing and whether that makes you sick and whether you've been sick and how you're doing. And I think that's really amazing. Dr. Yende, for the non-statisticians listening to the podcast, I'd like you to take a stab at describing how you were able to model cognitive decline and pneumonia risk over time. So as Dr. Ivashna said, there were several statistical challenges when we set out to do the analysis to test a hypothesis. First of all, this was going to be a longitudinal analysis, which means we weren't just interested in looking whether cognitive function puts individuals at higher risk for pneumonia by looking at measures of cognitive function at a single time point. And that's what's typically done in most studies. What we were really interested is looking at changes in cognitive function over time and whether that would influence risk of pneumonia hospitalization. The second challenge was that we had unequal follow-up in different subjects. So let me give you an example. Let's say we took a subject who was doing fine when he entered the study and we had measures of their cognitive function over the next four years. And in year five, he developed an episode of pneumonia. And we have another individual who was, again, doing fine when he entered the study and did actually quite well for the next eight years and then developed pneumonia in year nine. 
So we have two individuals who had very different time intervals of follow-up, and we had to somehow account for this differential follow-up when we modeled the relationship between cognitive function and risk of pneumonia. And just to clarify, uh, what we are trying to answer was whether the rate of change in cognitive decline uh, increases your risk of pneumonia hospitalization. So we tried to use two approaches, and sort of the first approach is what I call as a simple approach, something that most medical students can understand, and the second approach was a more complicated approach using the joint models. I'm going to focus more on the first approach because it's a much more easier approach to understand. What we started by doing was assembling the cognitive function measures for individuals who had pneumonia, and we only looked at those measures that were obtained before they had pneumonia. And for the remaining individuals in the cohort, we collected all of the cognitive measures that were available. We then used a trajectory analysis, and what this means in very simple terms is that it's an unsupervised clustering method. What it does is that the statistical model plots cognitive function measures for every individual and then identifies different subgroups based on the trajectories of their cognitive function as has been outlined in figure one of the paper. And as you can see, we identified three different trajectories. And I think so these trajectories are self-explanatory. The first trajectory was a trajectory of no decline. In this trajectory, individuals start at a very high cognitive function. There is no change in cognitive function throughout the study, and their cognitive function remains high even at the end of the study. Uh, the second trajectory is a trajectory of minimal decline. Here, individuals start with a slightly lower but normal cognitive function, and they decline very minimally. For example, the cognitive function declined by less than 10 points over a 10-year period. So we are talking about a very small decline in their cognitive function, something that most clinicians wouldn't test for when they were seeing patients as an outpatient basis. And most family members wouldn't even recognize that these individuals are having these small changes in cognitive function. And then finally, there was a third trajectory, which we call as the severe decline or the rapidly declining trajectory, where individuals started with slightly lower cognitive function, and they rapidly deteriorated. Most of these individuals probably developed dementia subsequently. So to understand whether small changes in cognitive function increase risk of pneumonia hospitalization, we first tried to understand what was the relationship between these trajectories and risk of pneumonia hospitalization. And what we found that if you're hospitalized with pneumonia, you're more likely to be in the group that had minimally declining trajectories or a rapidly declining trajectory. Whereas if you're not hospitalized with pneumonia, you're more likely to be in the group that had no decline in the cognitive function trajectory, suggesting that decline in cognitive function is associated with higher risk of pneumonia hospitalization. We then decided to do, uh, use a more complex statistical model, which is called as a joint model. And without going into all the details, what the joint model tries to do is it looks at three different things within a trajectory. It first looks at their baseline cognitive function, which is a cognitive function when they enter the study. It then looks at the rate of change or the rate of decline in their cognitive function over time. And the third thing it does is it actually looks at the cognitive function just before they develop pneumonia. And what the beauty of this model is, it allows us to estimate the risk of each of these three parameters and the risk of hospitalization for pneumonia. 
And what we showed was that the lower cognitive function just before the pneumonia hospitalization was associated with higher risk of subsequent uh, hospitalization for pneumonia. What was really surprising to us was that small changes in cognition were associated with higher risk for pneumonia. So let me give you an example. We saw that a one-point change in cognitive function increased the risk of pneumonia hospitalization by about 2.5%. A five-point change in cognitive function increased your risk of pneumonia hospitalization by 11%. These are really small changes in cognitive function, and as I mentioned previously, these are most likely to be subclinical in most individuals. Most clinicians wouldn't recognize it, and most family members wouldn't know it. And so these are small changes in cognitive function that are occurring at the subclinical level yet putting these individuals at higher risk for pneumonia. The next thing that the joint model allowed us to do was to understand whether this association was independent of other risk factors. So it's likely that people who are having cognitive decline were just older or have lots of other diseases that put them at risk for cognitive function and also at risk for pneumonia. And when we adjusted for all of these covariates, we still saw that the results were statistically significant. And finally, as I said earlier, we were really interested in understanding if small changes in cognitive function in individuals who look good are increased risk of pneumonia hospitalization. So we took individuals in the three trajectories and we threw out the individuals who were in the rapidly declining trajectories. So we took the individuals who were in the no decline trajectories and the minimal decline trajectories. We also did a lot of other work that I won't go into detail to make sure that these individuals had good functional status before having a pneumonia. And even in these individuals who appeared to have fairly good cognitive function throughout the study and were in fairly good functional status, we showed that small changes in cognitive function were associated with higher risk of pneumonia hospitalization. And I think so what both these models suggest is that while most of us knew that if an individual had dementia, they would have higher risk of pneumonia. What this suggests is that small subclinical changes in cognition, which may not be apparent to family members and clinicians, increase the risk of pneumonia hospitalization. Thank you for that description, Dr. Yende. So just to follow up the last question, can you describe the second aspect of the bidirectional relationship, the effects of pneumonia? on cognitive decline after pneumonia? So once we had shown that small changes in cognitive function uh, increases risk of pneumonia hospitalization, we then tried to understand if an episode of pneumonia hospitalization then increases risk of subsequent decline in cognitive function and dementia. So we used a time-varying covariate analysis, and without getting into all the details of a time-varying covariate analysis, what this model allows us to do is to model pneumonia that is occurring over time during the study. And what we showed was that an episode of pneumonia increased the hazards of being diagnosed with dementia by twofold. One of the things I would like to clarify is that we're not suggesting that infection necessarily increases the risk of dementia itself. Rather, it leads to earlier clinical presentation of dementia. And I think that this is really important. We have looked at these patients over a 10-year period. Most of these patients who were diagnosed with dementia probably had pathologic changes of dementia in their brain 
even before they had an episode of pneumonia. But we think so perhaps what happens in these patients is that once they have an episode of pneumonia, it accelerates the underlying cognitive decline and leads to earlier clinical presentation of dementia. So do you think it's just earlier recognition that they've gotten sick and so we're keeping an eye on them more closely now or perhaps we're less willing to overlook the fact that, you know, grandpa doesn't seem to be getting his checkbook and so that they're diagnosed more quickly? Or do you think it actually worsens their brain? So we did one of the analysis where we compared it to other hospitalizations, which in some ways takes into account the issue of diagnostic bias, I think so. So I think it is less likely that this is purely because we are looking at these people really hard. And I think so there is probably some brain inflammation, which leads to either earlier presentation of the clinical dementia or accelerates whatever the underlying dementia process. And part of it is we just don't know, you know, we don't quite understand dementia in terms of the pathophysiology of dementia. So it's really hard to sort of pinpoint what is happening. But I do think so that there is either some acceleration of a process that is important for clinical presentation of dementia or there is an acceleration of the dementia process itself. It does, and that's the same way I had read your paper as it as showing really quite nicely that it seems to be something about infection per se in contrast to other kinds of hospitalization that leads people's brains to get worse faster. And what I find fascinating about this is the way it has implications for kind of reframing a lot of the way we're thinking about post-hospitalization syndrome. You know, as you and many of our, your listeners will know very well, there's Harlan Krumholtz wrote this lovely piece in the New England Journal saying that after all hospitalizations, there's this period of increased vulnerability and suggesting that there was nothing particularly special about one kind of hospitalization or another. And what I find fascinating about this paper is that the way I read it is it suggests that infectious hospitalizations increase the rate at which people become demented and increase their rates of decline in the cognitive testing, and that doesn't seem to be as true of other hospitalizations, suggesting there really is something fascinating about long-term effects of having once been infected on the brain that we really don't understand adequately, but I think have big implications for the way we think about prevention and the care of older Americans. I think that that's an excellent point, Dr. Awashnan. Actually, I wanted to follow up with Dr. Yende about this because your group has also published work regarding high levels of IL-6 and IL-10 at time of hospital discharge when patients obviously are good enough to go home but have some subclinical inflammation being associated with one-year mortality. And, you know, this study showing patients with infectious causes for hospitalization being at higher risk for cognitive decline seems to be a, a similar signal. So I'd ask for you, your hypothesis of you think there is a specific signal related to inflammation and long-term morbidity and mortality? So I think so. The bi-direction relationship raises a lot of questions about mechanisms, as you rightly pointed out. And the big question is, is there a single mechanism that plays a role in acceleration of chronic diseases, puts individuals at high risk for infection, and once an infection occurs, that particular mechanism is upregulated and it persists during recovery, 
and in turn that mechanism leads to further acceleration of chronic disease and it is quite fascinating that acute infectious illnesses may perhaps accelerate a particular pathway that may be in play even before individuals had an infection and so it's quite likely that inflammation may be one of the pathways that may be present in these individuals and this pathway may be upregulated by an episode of acute infection and may persist during recovery uh, and as many of the prior studies uh, in the field of dementia pointed out that higher inflammatory markers may put individuals at higher risk for dementia inflammation may therefore put these individuals at higher risk for dementia after an acute infectious illness i have to be a little bit cautious uh, when i talk about inflammation in the circulation it is quite likely that inflammation is just a surrogate marker for some sort of process going on in the brain and maybe there is a completely different pathway that might be playing a role and inflammation may be just an epiphenomena that we have seen in some of these studies thank you dr yende Dr. Iwashina, I wanted to talk about another intriguing aspect of this study. I think one thing that interests us all who take care of critically ill patients when we've started to recognize that there are long-term implications and there's long-term decline. It's whether the long-term effects are related to the disease process, the treatments we give them to keep them alive during the critical illness or both. So in this study, severity of pneumonia did not seem to relate to the severity of cognitive decline. You know, obviously this is one study in a a very complex question. But I'd ask you do you find this suggests you know, I'd like to hope to think it's the effect of pneumonia rather than our supportive treatments causing the decline. And as a follow-up, what sort of questions does this finding raise for you as we go forward in studying this? Oh wow, is that a hard question? And let me say, you know, I go on service September 3rd, and I'm going to be sending, you know, the next two weeks is intending in the ICU. And so it's something I'm enormously concerned about because one of my challenges as a researcher here who also is a practicing intensivist is the question of what the hell do I tell families? As we know that life after the ICU is hard, but we also know that there's so much variation in it. So let me take a couple pieces of your question and try to disentangle them. So the first is the question of kind of why isn't god awful ARDS and septic shock worse for long-term outcomes than just vanilla pneumonia? And there's little evidence in Dr. Gendey's lovely work that it's septic shock as opposed to just pneumonia that's bad. And frankly, that signal's been poked around in a bunch of other studies, including my own. Many of us have not been sure what to do with it and have chosen not to shine a light on it, whereas I think quite bravely, Dr. Gendy's group has said, "No, actually, look, there's no evidence here that people with severe sepsis have it worse afterward than people with just pneumonia without evidence of organ dysfunction in the hospital claims." And I think that's a really interesting and challenging thing. The first thing to note is they are still worse, right? So people who have septic shock and who have ARDS die acutely in much higher rates uh than people who don't. And so those organ dysfunctions, if you look at a, you know, well, like a composite endpoint of dead or demented, there are more dead and demented people who have bad ICU courses than among those who don't go in the ICU. And so we need to think carefully about that. 
But in terms of looking among survivors, I'm not yet willing to say this means, okay, we can let the ICU off the hook, because I think we have lots of reason to suspect there are marginal effects, but still important effects in the ICU care where we can make things better. That being said, I think what this points to is the big hole in our research, and that for so long we've accepted 28-day or 90-day outcomes as if those were patient-centered outcomes in the ICU. And further, we've acted as if knowing those short-term outcomes must mean that things are moving in the same direction for the long term. And I think we have lots of reasons to say we need to start demanding from ARDSnet and from the FDA that they at least require the long-term outcomes. You know, many of us are waiting actively to see what the real long-term outcome of prowess shock is, which I don't believe have been released yet. But most studies, even the new ARDSnet, which has done important work um, following up to 90 days, stopped at 90 days, and the Needham's group with the Eden follow-up were doing add-on work to follow things out to a year. We don't have a good evidence base yet to really say to what extent is this the illness, to what extent is this an interplay between the illness and the treatment mechanisms to really understand. I think this is a fascinating area, and I'm lucky to have you both here, and I'd like to sort of ask you both to sort of wrap this up, and I'll ask Dr. Awashina for your sort of final thoughts. You're talking about looking, we need to study these long-term outcomes prospectively in addition to just looking at 30 and 60 and 90-day mortality. And I think this is such an intriguing time of of this sort of research because there are more questions than answers that are provided by great papers like uh, Dr. Yende's current paper. I guess I'd want to know what are the next steps in studying this and getting a better handle on this. So first I'd like uh, Dr. Washina to respond and then uh, we'll have Dr. Yende. So I think that's a crucial question. And I think to my mind there are at least two important parts. The first is to start recognizing that the days of one simple outcome that was going to characterize everything are gone, that we're too good at keeping people from dying, although still far too many people die in the ICU, but we're too good at keeping people from dying for short-term mortality alone to be the outcome of any trial, and that we need to start accepting that there's going to be a portfolio of outcome assessments that we need, ranging from death and quality of life to more granular disability, to issues around impact on spouses, to potential physiologic outcomes. And we're going to need to look at all of those and start to understand the interplay. I think the second thing we need to start doing is understanding when there are these discontinuities, when there are people who take bad physiologic hits, but that doesn't influence their life so negatively, and start understanding what it is about what some of the social science literature call positive deviance the people who do so much better than they ought to, what it is about those people that lets them be resilient and be able to succeed and start finding ways to emphasize this, both in the ICU, where we can think about early physical therapy or possibly delirium treatment as ways to help promote people's resiliency, and then in post-ICU transfers and discharge practices. Too often, we've tended to focus on those emotionally salient subset of people with really devastating diseases in the ICU, and they're important, but we need to start thinking about this across the continuum of care and thinking about this much more generally, not just about the extreme tale. And Dr. Yende, I'd ask for your final thoughts. 
I think so there is one important sort of take-home message in terms of redesigning clinical trials. We always think of sepsis trials as a patient who comes to the ICU who has severe sepsis, and we think of an intervention that will last for days, maybe up to a week. But we really don't take into account the fact that perhaps the process is still ongoing weeks or months down the road. And so one can start now thinking about interventions that have started in the ICU but could continue for weeks or even months down the road with the goal being to improve long-term outcomes. I just want to circle back to sort of Dr. Vershner's initial point as to the role of organ dysfunction and severe infection. I'm an intensivist and I have always chose to focus on patients who have severe infection and land up in the ICU. And what this work suggests is that perhaps there are a lot of processes that are common to patients who are in the ICU as well as who are in the floor with infections. And we always think about enrolling patients in trials of severe sepsis or critical illness, but perhaps there is a common set of interventions that could be targeted to patients who have infections, regardless of whether they are in the ICU on the floor. And we really need to sort of broaden our approach when we enroll these patients in clinical trials and also try to enroll some of these patients who have acute infections and actually on the floor, as well as try to enroll patients who are in the ICU. Well, thank you both for joining me in what's been a very interesting and informative discussion. Dr. Yende's article suggests a need to evaluate mechanisms that underlie the long-term morbidity post-infection, and it is becoming clear that future clinical trials will have to study long-term functional outcomes in addition to 60- or 90-day mortality. This study, as well as Dr. Iwashina's accompanying editorial, is published in the September 1, 2013 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. You can find the complete archives of the ATS article discussion podcast at thoracic.org. In addition, you can get a free subscription to ATS podcasts by searching iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussions. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society. <laughs>